If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. These trans activists who are accusing us of bigotry are refusing to engage, trying to shut down the conversation. You know, they're the ones who are intolerant. Mm. They're the ones who don't want to hear it, who don't want to have civil, respectful conversations and instead want to, like, scream nasty things at us. It's so weird that the actual bigots, they are actual bigots. Like, that's actually what the definition is. They're calling us (laughs) bigots and continuing on with their bigotry. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Megan Murphy. Megan is a feminist writer and activist from Canada. She is founder and editor of the online magazine Feminist Current. She's been writing about women's issues for 10 years and has made a name for herself as a critical voice among feminists. And in November last year, she was banned permanently from Twitter in one of the most notorious cases of social media censorship. She was given a lifetime ban for supposedly dead naming a trans woman. I'm doing quote marks around the word woman and we'll come on to why shortly. Since that ban, uh, Megan has become a feminist hero for certain people. Um, she's currently in the United Kingdom talking to huge audiences about the issue of transgenderism, censorship and feminism more broadly. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I guess the first thing I should ask you about, and you might be bored rigid of talking about it, but I want to ask you about the Twitter ban and how that came about. What did you do that was so offensive that you had to be permanently exiled from one of the key social media platforms of our age? I referred to a man as he, (laughs) him specifically. I, yeah, like I've been on Twitter since 2011 and I never really had any issues. And I've reported plenty of tweets on, on Twitter. People have said some pretty horrid things to me. Lots and lots and lots of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have said really horrible things to me, including that I should die yeah. and be raped. But that's all, all acceptable. That's all fine. <laughs> they started like going, it seemed like they kind of started combing through my tweets and like shutting me down and making me delete stuff. And one of the things that they made me delete was men aren't women. Obviously an offensive statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very offensive. <laughs> And the other one was, I think it was something like, what's the, what, what, what's the difference between a trans woman and a man? And that's a question that I ask all the time. Like, I'm not being facetious. I'm literally asking, like, what happens between you're a man and you're a trans woman? What's the difference? Mm. Because as far as I can tell, it's just an announcement. Mm. And then when I got back on, I was really pissed off. And I was like, what the fuck is this, basically? And posted the screenshot of the email that they'd sent me. And then they shut me down for that. It's like, I can't say that men aren't women. I can't ask these questions. And then the final straw for Twitter, 
they really cracked down was this tweet in reference to this guy in Vancouver who had been going around to local estheticians and asking them to give him a Brazilian bikini wax. And they declined and said, we only offer this service for women. And so he took 14 of them to human rights court and tried to sue them. And somebody discovered his real identity, which was being protected by the media, which is like big of them. Like they were publishing <laughs> the names of the women that he was going after, but they were, they were referring to him by his pronouns, JY. So somebody discovered his real identity, wrote a blog post about it, and also found like this history of kind of, you know, predatory behavior towards girls and that he had this sort of litigious history also. So he had this pattern of going after businesses either to sue them or to like get free food or whatever. So I was like, is it true that JY is so-and-so? And I linked to his Twitter account and... Uh, I was either sent a screenshot or I saw a screenshot of a review that he'd posted online, like on Yelp or something like that saying, and it was under the name, his male name mm-hmm. with his male face. And it said, Ali did a great job on my Brazilian bikini wax. So it confirmed his identity. So I tweeted the screenshot and said, yeah, it's him. And this on Friday night, somebody like at Twitter on Friday night, I guess had the time to permanently ban me for saying, yeah, it's him. And they cited their hateful conduct policy but they never really said specifically it was hateful like i i mm. assume that it's this misgendering thing but i still don't know because they've never told me and that was before they'd announced even that they had a rule against misgendering mm. and i didn't misgender him because he was going by his male name still on social media so he's misgendering himself maybe they should have banned him <laughs> <laughs> that whole case i mean we'll come on to the specifics of your case and the and the nature of censorship and so on but that whole case off this um, supposedly trans woman demanding in a quite confrontational way, politically confrontational way, that people, uh, that, that actual women should give him a Brazilian wax strikes me as a man as completely gross because these were services that were for women um, specifically. And the idea that someone should be forced to wax someone's testicles when they don't want to looks to me and sounds to me like abusive behavior the idea that these women if they even if they don't want to should have to wax the genitals of the opposite sex how have we arrived at a situation where a born male demanding insisting that the government force women or cajole women in some fashion to attend to his genitals. How, how have we arrived at a situation in which that is seen as a legitimate progressive goal? I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's so crazy to me that people who consider themselves leftist progressives, you know, people who care about social justice, people who supposedly care about marginalized people, you know, leftists position themselves as the good guys, right? Mm. The ones who care about people who are poor or people who are suffering or whatever. And yet it's the leftists who are pushing this, this idea where, you know, women, women can't say no, like these women, according to trans ideology, according to trans activists are being bigoted because they're not accepting that this man is a woman and that they should therefore give him a Brazilian bikini wax. Like to me, it seems like, it seems like a real treat for men who don't want to respect women's boundaries and who want to, you know, exploit women and girls or take advantage of them. Like it's a bullying move. Right. Mm. And mm. like, and beyond that, I'm told that I don't know because I don't 
do Brazilian bikini waxes for men or women. (laughs) (laughs) I don't perform that service. Uh, I told that it's like a different service. Like they were like, we would need different tools so we can't even Even practically it's problematic. Yeah. Like it seems like it might be kind of like a dangerous thing for a man to get a Brazilian bikini I don't know. That would be a really good idea. (laughs) Also, like a lot of these, like these women, like some of them worked out of their homes. So essentially Mm -hmm. he's pressuring them into letting this, letting him like this strange guy into their houses and wanting them to touch his genitals. If progressives aren't supportive of this, they aren't speaking out about it. Yeah. And the media in Canada around this whole story was gross. Like, they all referred to him as she. And again, they protected his anonymity, which is like, you're protecting the anonymity of a predatory man. In some ways, like, it's sort of, it's good for our cause, you know, people who are challenging gender gender identity ideology and legislation, because it's like what women were worried would happen. Mm. Like we're like, do you know what will happen if we go along with this? It'll mean that men get to like not respect women's boundaries. Men get to like abuse women. Men get to like enter women's spaces and they don't get to say no. They don't get to like be in a change room and they're not be like a dick there. Like (laughs) they don't get to be like, look, I don't want this in my space when I'm changing or when I'm in like a vulnerable situation. And that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. He's doing it. And the basic expectation of a woman's changing room is that there will not be any penises in there. I mean, that is really a fundamental (laughs) basic understanding of what a woman's changing room means. So the broader question touched upon by your banning from Twitter, which is one of the best known cases of Twitter censorship. And uh, I know that you were on a list, the Spectator published a list recently of (laughs) where to find your favourite banned celebrities. So you're on there with Milo Yiannopoulos and various other people who'd been exiled, which I'm sure did wonders for your reputation as a leftist. But we can come on to that in a second. Oh, well, yeah, the leftists don't want me anymore. No. So uh, (laughs) I want to ask you about that specifically. But the fundamental question of censorship is, uh, in, in this case, is the increasing inability to say that a man is not a woman and a man cannot become a woman. And this strikes me as, as one of the most Orwellian instances of censorship in our pretty censorious age where you cannot even speak the truth of biological difference, sex difference, uh, the difference between men and women. So fundamentally, you are a censored person because you uttered a phrase that you consider to be completely true. Right. I mean, it's it's the destruction of the English language, which we were warned about. Mm. Yeah, it's like words no longer have any meaning. So we can't, you know, woman no longer has a definition. That's what I kept pushing on Twitter. That was one of the things that I kept pushing on Twitter was like, you know, this this trans women or women mantra. It's like, okay, then what's a woman? Like, what yeah. is it that you are insisting that you are? An identity. It's like, okay. Or like, a woman is a woman. Like, it's like, no, that's not how definitions work. Like, I don't understand why people don't... First of all, that they don't think that they need to answer for their ideology. It's like, you're the one who's saying this. This is your activism. These are your words. This is your language. This is your ideology. These are your politics that you're trying to push. But no one's allowed to challenge you or ask questions about it. Like, you don't have to have conversations with people who are wondering or concerned about the politics or the legislation that you're pushing. And also what I don't understand is why is it so important 
to insist that you're a woman and have everyone else go along with this idea that you're a woman if the word woman legit doesn't mean anything. Mm. Like, what are you? Why does it matter? Then just say you're a trans woman. I mean, I don't use the word trans woman. I say, like, trans-identified male or just man because I don't want to go along with this at all. But why, what's with the insistence that you're literally female? Mm. And then what's a female? It's like nothing. It's just a man or it's just anything. It's anybody. No one knows. That really strikes a chord with me because I've, I've always thought that one of the core components of transgender politics is misogyny. And there's an, there's an inherent misogyny, not simply in the way in which they will attack women like you who say certain things and they will call you a turf, which is a modern term for witch in essence. So there's misogyny in the way in which they uh, attack feminists who express what they view as dissident opinions. But it also strikes me that there's misogyny in the very idea that a man, someone who was born a man, can become a woman simply by declaring it. Because that seems to me to be a complete diminishing of womanhood and the reality of womanhood and, and the biological, relational, cultural, historical reality of womanhood. So how much do you think the driver of transgenderism is a misogynistic worldview, or do you think it just is attended by a misogynistic worldview? How would you assess that dynamic? Well, I think that, I don't think that everyone who supports transgender ideology is necessarily a misogynist, Mm. but I think that this movement began because of autogynophilic men. So men who have fetishes around imagining themselves as women or wearing women's clothes. So it was an attempt. This is what I think. (laughs) I don't necessarily have proof, but other people also think this as well, such as me, like Ray Blanchard. Do you know, you know, Ray Blanchard, right? Mm. His research shows that essentially all trans women in quotations are either closeted gay men. So gay men with internalized homophobia or scared to come out or men with autogynophilia. Um, and this whole trans kids movement, this idea that there's such a thing as a trans kid, that it's possible for a kid to be born in the wrong body. And that, you know, if they step out of gender stereotypes, traditional gender roles, then they must actually be the opposite sex. And then they need to be transitioned. Like they need to go on hormones and puberty blockers and all this other fucked up shit. And like, basically they get set on a path towards surgeries and destroying their bodies for life that's all led by adults. Um, And and I think, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist because I'm not, (laughs) but I think like, you know, autogynophilic men who want trans ideology legitimized and they don't want any questions. So they're, they're using that born, born this way Mm. thing that, you know, was, was used by the LGBT or LGB movement. (laughs) Can't even say without the T anymore. So, I mean, that's misogynistic in itself because it's fetishizing femininity and fetishizing womanhood and turning it into like a sexual thing. And obviously women don't feel that they exist as a fetish. And it's all based on gender stereotypes and whatever. Like we can have other conversations about gender. I know that there's lots of people who think that there are aspects of gender that are innate. And I think that probably is partially true. I mean, evolution 
is a real thing. You know, like it, it's saying that essentially if you, if you attach yourself or you feel like an affinity towards or in, like you're, you're into certain gender stereotypes. So you like wearing dresses. You like the color pink. Like if you're a kid, you like playing with dolls. You like wearing high heels. You like wearing makeup. That's what defines womanhood. And that's of course what feminists have been pushing against forever and ever. They're saying, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, no, what defines womanhood is not all these, these stereotypes around the idea that like women are inherently passive or women are inherently delicate or women are inherently more emotional than men or irrational or whatever. So they've taken all these stereotypes and said, no, this is what's innate. This is material reality. The female, the female body biology is a social construction, but all these ideas that we impose onto women and men are are the real deal. Like that's the real thing. Um, that's, so that's actually a really good way of putting it. And because that's the fascinating thing where the, uh, the female body, the biological reality becomes this kind of constructed, invented thing. And all the stereotypes, as you say, become the kind of, uh, the reality. And, and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you was transgenderism is embraced by, you know, supposedly radical leftists and, and unfortunately by some radical feminists, but not kind of trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Liberal or, feminists. Liberal feminists. Third wave feminists. Let's right. say third wave feminists. Okay, third wave okay. and liberal feminists. Um, I lose track of the waves, but we can go on to okay. that. Um, it's hard to keep up with. But it strikes me that far from being a radical or edgy or 1960s style thing, mm-hmm. there's a real strong streak of conservatism because it is based on a view of womanhood as a, a stereotypical thing, you wear the right dress, you have the right boobs. And, you know, it's very striking that a lot of the men who transition to supposed womanhood always transition to a particular view of womanhood. They never turn into kind of, you know, like boring librarians in a, in a, like a kind butch of, lesbian. Or a bush lesbian, or, you know, <laughs> in a kind of cardigan sweater or, you know, whatever else. And one of the key aspects of that, and I think this is incredibly dangerous and I wanted your opinion on it, is the notion of male brains and female brains. And one of the arguments that trans activists and, and the kind of even the medical supporters of trans activism make is that it's possible to be a born male, but with a female brain. And it strikes me that the idea of the female brain is a massive step backward in relation to how we view women that just naturalizes sexism, right? Because it's saying there's no like external factors that, you know, socialize men and women towards these different roles. So socialize men towards masculinity, towards whatever, aggression, domination, violence, and women towards again, like passivity and I don't know, fainting, like, (laughs) (laughs) but it's saying, well, there's nothing you can do about it. That's how your brain is. Yeah. You're, you're born and you're inherently drawn to like wearing makeup and like having long nails. And <laughs> I was just born this way. I can't help it. <laughs> um, and yeah, like high heels and sort of being like you're, you're born into a subordinate status and there's nothing you can do about it. Like it's saying that's innate as opposed to something that's like a cultural construction or something that's social and socialized. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also that's impossible. Like how do you get a woman's brain into your body? Like it doesn't make, none of it makes any (laughs) sense. It's like the the whole idea that you can be born in a wrong body makes no sense. It's like, no, sorry. Like you're just born with your body and like maybe your body sucks or you don't like it, but there's (laughs) nothing like you can do about it. It's like, we're just, nobody's body is perfect. And I mean, this idea of gender dysphoria, I feel like relates 
in a lot of ways to, or the, the argument could, could be compared to anorexia, right? Where it's like, you're looking in the mirror and you're super thin, like in an unhealthy way. And you're seeing this fat person. Yeah. It's not possible. It's not yeah. possible to be born in a wrong body. The idea doesn't make any sense. And if we, if we go along with that idea, like I feel like it can extend to all sorts of weird, more offensive places. I mean, this is offensive to me, but obviously mm. there's a lot of people who don't find it offensive, but it's like, well, you know, like I'm white, but I feel like I should have been born black, for example. Mm. Like I feel like I relate more to black people or I feel like maybe I have like a black person's brain inside of me. Like that's mm. like an obviously racist thing to say. Yeah that would be offensive to anybody on the left or any yeah. progressive person. So I don't understand why they're going along with this idea of female brains and male bodies. I completely agree with that. And in fact, I've made the argument before that I feel that I have far more in common in terms of inherited traits and biology and all that other stuff with a black man than I do with a woman. And so the argument that I could become a woman simply by declaring it strikes me as even being even more bizarre than the idea that I could declare that I'm a black man, because at least the connection between men is incredibly similar, regardless of your racial origins, whereas the connection between a man and a woman is rather different. There are huge differences there. But one thing I wanted to ask you, I think I really strongly agree with you on the comparison, and this would be offensive to many people, but you know, that's life. The comparison of gender dysphoria to anorexia, because it does, I, I see a lot of similarities between those two things. But the difference, of course, is the social response to those two different supposed diagnoses. So the social response to anorexia is to recognize that there's a real problem here. And these mostly women, young women, most, most of the time need to have help. They need to be assisted. They need to be broken out of the view of their body as something disgusting and something that they need to destroy. Whereas the response to gender dysphoria is very often the opposite, where you go along with the thing that these people see in the mirror and you insist to them that they must take every approach they can in order to manifest the thing that they see in the mirror, which strikes me as a real abdication of the responsibilities of society. So instead of assisting the individual who has a particular view of their body as disgusting, you go along with it. And I think that's one of the most dangerous aspects of transgenderism is the response of society itself. Like, I think especially for kids that it's a real weird thing to say to them, like, yeah, you do, there is something wrong with your body mm. and you should change it. I mean, what we should be telling kids is like, no, your body is yeah. fine. Yeah. And we should be encouraging kids and people in general to like accept their bodies and not hate their bodies and not cut off parts of their bodies. I mean, imagine if you told an anorexic person like, okay, you believe you're fat and to support you, I'm going to agree with you that you're fat and that you should starve yourself yeah. or you should diet. Like nobody would do that. No. Like that's a real harmful thing to do. I'm not sure about this idea of gender dysphoria. I mean, I'm sure that there are some people who genuinely do have this really distressing feeling about their body that it's wrong and it should be different. I think that, that that's probably like a small percentage of the, the trans population, whatever the trans population is. But if, if they do feel like that, then that's a mental illness problem. Mm. Yeah. That's not a oh yeah, your body is wrong. It's yeah. like, no, you're suffering from some form of mental illness. And to say that now is construed as extremely offensive. Yeah. 
Like, I don't think that you would be able to publish that argument in most publications where you're like, these people are mentally ill, clearly. Like, it's not a judgment. No. It's not a, like, I hate you. Like, we were supposed to be, like, accepting mental illness and understanding mental illness and supporting people with mental illness in our day and age. So it, I don't know why that's construed as a particularly like, egregious thing to say. Yeah. And in fact, in this case in particular, and many other cases, it's the opposite of being an egregious thing to say, because what you're actually wanting to do is to recognize the origins of the problem and the potential solutions to the problem, which probably would not involve the removal of perfectly healthy body parts, which mm -hmm. strikes me as an incredibly destructive response to what I would consider to be a pretty delusional view of oneself. Yeah. And it's weird because like, so as a feminist, I'm critical of cosmetic surgery. Like I'm not trying to stop people from getting cosmetic surgery. I'm not trying to, you know, make laws again, you know, like if a woman wants to get breast implants, I'm not going to try to stop her, but I don't think it's a good thing. Like I don't think that women getting plastic surgery so that they can have these like perfect pornographic bodies is, I, I don't think that's like a good thing for women. And I think actually in general, women who are, distressed about I've read research about this women who are distressed about their like breast size they don't feel better once they get breast implants like it doesn't resolve their body hatred but yeah. all that aside it's like why would a feminist who is critical of cosmetic surgery and critical of these like beauty standards that are pushed onto women and make them hate their bodies etc cetera, etc cetera, support it because it's a man doing it mm. It's like, oh, no, you, you have to do that or you'll kill yourself. Like, yeah. or, you know, this is going to resolve all your problems. This is going to make you feel better. Like, yeah, you're, you're the real solution is for you to change your body, like to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars creating this like false female body that's modeled after, you know, pornographic standards or sexist standards, at least. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. There's something I want to ask you in relation to what you've just said in a minute. But firstly, I have to ask you about Canada because <laughs> Canada's a strange place. I love Canadians, but, um, I don't, you know, you know <laughs> we, <laughs> we, you and I shared a platform in Brighton recently yeah. and we were talking about some of these issues and you made the point that there is much more openness in the British media to trans skepticism than there is in the Canadian media. And um, you made a point that I was incredibly surprised by, which is that there has been almost no coverage or certainly no critical coverage of your own case in Canada, which strikes me as something that needs to be analysed because there's been a huge amount over the past few days and weeks of your case in the British media. So what is going on in Canada where you have a situation where a, a feminist who's who's a well-known feminist, a writer, a commentator can be banned from Twitter despite not being a fascist, despite not being a racist or any of the other things or, or, or on their kind of list of hateful things you must not say. How can that happen? And there's so little critical coverage. 
What's wrong with Canada? It's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so weird. Like it's like I, since I've been in the UK, all I've been doing is media stuff <laughs> and interviews. And 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 then when I was banned for Twitter, it got covered in the US a lot. Mm. And Canada, like I think one, I think the National Post published an article about it, and nobody else did. And in general, like the Canadian media has tried really hard to ignore me. <laughs> And I will not be ignored. <laughs> like the art. So our national public broadcaster, the CBC, yeah. you know, which is like, I've been listening to the CBC since I was a kid. Like it's just been the soundtrack to my life. So it's like particularly kind of offensive or hurtful, I guess. But like we held an event in January in Vancouver about addressing the issue of gender identity and women's rights. And of course, a lot of people complained and tried to get it shut down. The Vancouver Public Library or venue published this like really shitty statement, basically like dissing me. I was like, you don't, you can just say <laughs> we're not canceling the event. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have anything to do with our views instead of basically implying that, well, she is really hateful, but there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> and the mayor said that I was despicable on the news. Like the mayor. Like, it's like, and I'm getting death threats. I'm getting death threats. And the mayor goes on the news and says, I'm despicable. It's like, cool. Thanks for your help. (laughs) So, but like this, the CBC held a a panel on one of their radio shows to discuss the event and whether or not I might say something hateful. So they're, they're speculating about what I might say at the event, whether or not it will construe a hate speech, whether or not I should be like arrested and taken off to jail. And they don't contact me for comment or invite me to come on the panel. And like, it's like, I'm in, I've been on the CBC before to talk about other issues. Like they have my contact info. (laughs) (laughs) I've been on the show where they held the panel. Like I've talked to that that host before and they won't like, they just, they desperately, they so desperately don't want to legitimize or acknowledge that there's a feminist critique. Like they don't want to acknowledge that there are legitimate critiques of gender identity, ideology and legislation. They want to pretend that the only people who are concerned about this issue or disagreeing are horrible, hateful bigots, whatever, like right wing religious freaks. I'm not saying people who are religious on or on the right are freaks. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that's what they they, yeah. they they want to they want to pretend that it's a, a good people versus bad people thing and there's nothing in between. That's a terrifying story in itself. But what on top of that, what is the legal situation in Canada? So you have the C sixteen bill, mm-hmm. which I think is similar to a recent bill that was boarding brought in, in New York State in terms of pressuring people, especially institutions and organizations and employees to use preferred pronouns. So have things gone so far in the Canadian context that there is legal official pressure to um, address someone in the way that they think they should be addressed? Or is it not that bad yet? the The law is really vague. So C-16 brought gender identity into the human rights code and the criminal code there aren't official laws around pronouns. It's really easy for a person to change their sex on any of their ID. You need like a doctor's note or a note from a nurse practitioner, or I think like a counselor or something like that. And that's it. And it's, it's more just that these policies were adopted across the board 
and that organizations and the media and everyone else is going along with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like there was no public discussion. There was no consultation. It sets a precedent more than anything else. Yeah. Like there's going to have to be some kind of court case before we know for sure. Right. What's illegal, you know, whether or not me calling a man a man is an illegal thing to do (laughs) remains to be seen. (laughs) Uh, The very fact that it remains to be seen is terrifying in itself. Yeah. But um, in relation to the ease with which people can change their gender makeup on official documents, I've been thinking a lot about that recently because in the British context and the Irish context as well, even more so, in fact, um, one of the things that I find incredibly worrying is that people can now change their gender ID on their birth certificates. And I, I was relatively relaxed about it when it came to passports and so on, because, you know, if someone has supposedly transitioned and, and goes goes by a new name, then their passport probably should reflect that. But the changing of gender ID on birth certificates strikes me as perfectly unarguably Orwellian because what is happening in that situation is is you know on the 3rd of August 1985 uh, a boy was born and what we're now allowing people to do is to go back in into that document and to erase the truth which is that a boy was born and and replace it with a lie which is that a girl was born and that strikes me as opening the door to chaos Uh, uh, it's a very clear example of kind of 1984's process of memory holing where you shove inconvenient facts down the memory hole and replace them with more convenient facts why have more people not realized that the erasure of identities and names and historical facts on documents is is why have they not realized that that is a far greater problem than they perceive because people are so stupid and they don't (laughs) read books anymore (laughs) (laughs) When I was was on a a panel last night that was organized by Women's Place, which is a feminist socialist group, and the last question on the panel was like, can you recommend a book? And I did recommend 1984. (laughs) Good. But but yeah, like it's, I, I mean, the data issue and the stats issue, I think is a really big deal. Yeah. You know, like women's so like women's transition houses and rape crisis sh- centers and stuff like that, they get funding based on statistics. If we're saying that females are raping and assaulting women and they're not for the most part, like for the most part, it's men who are perpetrating violence and, and sexual assault against women and girls. Th- that's going to have a real impact on, on these places that women are supposed to be able to go for support when they've been abused or or raped or whatever. So and and I mean the 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 way that journalists and the media are going along with all of this, like the fact that it's like we'll read about male violence, we'll read about some horrible violent crime that a man committed, but oh, he he identifies as a woman now, so we're going to refer to him as she throughout because we have to respect the rapist, right? Like, we have to respect his wishes because otherwise, you know, like, we're really mean. And so now, like, it's going to mess up all these statistics. And, yeah, I don't I don't know why people are not concerned about this, like, mass gaslighting where we're, we're rewriting reality and you're not allowed to say what you see in front of your face. Mm. Like, it's almost like it's, it's almost hard to even describe mm. and to argue and to even explain why reality is important and why like yeah. statistics are important and why it's important for us to be able to 
name the truth and name the perpetrator and all of that. But it's, it's shocking how many people are going along with it and not saying anything. Yeah. To restate historical facts, which is that there is a person with a name who was born in a particular gender who has committed particular crimes. And, and you find yourself increasingly in a situation where even expressing those recorded facts become something that will land you the accusation of bigotry. But one thing I wanted to ask you, because you've just raised something that is actually incredibly serious in my view, which is there is a necessity of for women's spaces in various areas of life. And one of those people would presumably agree are rape crisis centers and places that women need to go to when they have suffered a traumatic sexual crime. And one of the things that's happened in Canada has been this demonization uh, and this kind of campaign to almost defund, I think, rape crisis centers that refuse to allow people who were born male to use their services. And that strikes me as the extreme cutting edge of this issue. Because there comes a point where you think to yourself, if, if feminists and people in general are not willing to defend rape crisis centers from the intrusion of born males, then this whole argument has spun out of control. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and transition houses and rape crisis centers were like a, a really central and important part of the women's movement. They were established during the second wave by feminists who created them, who funded them themselves, yeah. who volunteered, you know, this was... This was a big deal for the feminist movement and they're, they're hanging on for dear life. It's not like there's tons of funding out there in, you know, in North America. It's worse in the States than in Canada, but it's still very difficult in Canada to even fund these places. There's a total shortage of space, obviously. There's a shortage of space in shelters and transition houses generally, but, you know, Vancouver Rape Relief is Canada's longest-standing rape crisis center, and they're the only rape crisis center and transition house that has held strong on this woman-only thing. Everyone else has caved, and they're being punished for it. And they've been punished for it for a long time. I mean, they're vilified, and they do incredible work. Like, they house, they, they help, like, 1,200 rape victims a year, and they house 100 women and their kids every year. And they do public education, like they do events, like there's a, the only reason there's a feminist community, a real feminist community, not a fake feminist community, <laughs> where they, I don't know, go to like the strip club on the weekends. <laughs> but <laughs> the only reason there's a feminist community in, in Vancouver and a feminist movement in Vancouver against things like, you know, domestic abuse and violence against women and prostitution and pornography is because of Vancouver rape relief and... Yeah, they're, they're just vilified. And recently they lost a city grant for $30,000 because a few trans activists who have political power complained to the city and, you know, insisted that they allow men, they didn't call them men, but what they're insisting is that they allow men to, you know, be sheltered there and to train as counselors. Like, as if a woman who is leaving, like, a horribly violent situation or, like, escaping and trying to recover from sexual abuse wants to be counseled by a man. No. And they have their, they have the right to have a woman only space. Like they, they, there was a court case in the nineties because a, a trans woman named Kimberly Nixon tried to sue them because they wouldn't let him train to become a counselor there. And he took them to court and they won. 
And they won on the basis that they are allowed to define their own membership. Um, so what was decided that as an oppressed group, the judge decided that women are an oppressed class of people. And as an oppressed class of people, they're allowed to have services just for women there. Mm. And they're allowed to only have women in their collection. It's not even about women. Like it would be the same, the same law would be applied to like, if like indigenous people wanted yeah. to have a, a service or an organization or a group just for indigenous people or just for, you know, indigenous single moms, Yeah, they're allowed to do that as an oppressed group of people. So that's what they won. And this city still took away that grant. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Hannah Arendt makes this point, in fact, that one of the key components of freedom of association is the right to discriminate. Now, discrimination is seen as this terrible word because discrimination is often a very bad thing. Right. But the right to discriminate, so the right to associate with people you want to associate with for a particular reason, whether it's a gay men's group or a women's group or a, a, a black people's group or whatever it might be, is absolutely essential. But I think one of the things that transgender activism has given rise to is the desire to invade those groups and to insist that you are part of them when you clearly are not. But w- I, I wanted to ask you about the broader question of freedom of speech and the question of how your views might have changed or deepened as a consequence of the experience that you've gone through. So uh, a few moments ago, you, you referred to the term hate speech. And um, it strikes me that um, your experience demonstrates very clearly that hate speech is an incredibly politicized term and very often what is referred to as hate speech is is actually just an unfashionable opinion or a dissident opinion or a deeply held conviction that certain suits in in silicon valley or you know liberal respectable feminists disagree with so to what extent has your own personal experience of being banned and demonized bolstered your commitment to freedom of speech or made you rethink the issue of freedom of speech? A lot. I mean, it's not, I never, I guess I never really spent much time or energy standing up for free speech before. And it's not necessarily because I didn't believe in free speech. I just really didn't think about it that much. Mm. And, you know, in feminism, I know that people will get mad at me for saying this, but like, in feminism, there's no commitment to free speech mm. on the most part. I mean, I, I know feminists who do support free speech, but when we do defend free speech among feminist groups in general, we get kind of shut down or criticized. And there's this idea in feminism and on the left in general, <laughs> like that somehow if you, if you oppose free speech, that'll work in your favor. Yeah. Like, cause I'm always <laughs> saying, I'm like, well, so, okay, so you don't think this guy should be able to speak or share his views because you think that what he's saying is offensive or dangerous or whatever. And what's stopping anyone from using that against you? That's already happening. That's literally what's happening. Like they're stopping us from speaking because they're claiming that the things that we're saying are offensive or violent or dangerous. And yet still they can't see past it. And yeah. still they like hold this line where they're like, 
Well, but what I'm saying isn't hateful. It's like, yeah, I get it. But what he doesn't think that what he's saying is hateful either. Like mm. most people who are speaking don't think that they're being hateful and you can call them a bigot, but they don't think you're a bigot and everyone's calling you a bigot and you don't think you're a bigot. Like, do not see what's <laughs> happening here. So like I do, like I, I, I really, I, I feel bad for not standing up for free speech before. And I think in Canada, we really just sort of take that issue for granted. You know, there's way more people in the U.S. who are, free speechers. Yeah. And I think that most people like when I, so I, I have obviously started speaking out against free speech or against <laughs> in favor of free speech more because of all this stuff that's going on around the gender identity thing. And I'm, I'm seeing the impact and I'm sure that people who have, and I've seen people who have defended free speech criticizing me online for being like, Oh, she's doing it now. Cause yeah, it's impacting her, but it's not just that it's impacting me, but I mean, like sorry yeah that was not a very sincere sorry (laughs) sorry sorry not sorry (laughs) no i am sorry i am genuinely (laughs) sorry to all of those people saying that to me on youtube but it's like yeah i don't like it's important and i mean hate speech is i i really think hate speech is kind of a stupid idea i think that if you're inciting violence or genocide then that would constitute hate speech. Everything else goes. Yeah. Say whatever you want. I don't say, and also like, I want these ideas to be in the public. Like if you have racist ideas, then say it and then we can talk about it and challenge it. Like, why is it better for people to just think these things privately? I guess people think that it'll galvanize or it'll like, you know, create some movement, but I don't think that suppressing free speech helps. Like that's no. not going to change people's minds. Usually it does the opposite. Because if you don't expose their views or at least make them part of the ordinary, everyday rough and tumble of discussion, then they never are exposed or put under pressure. But, you know, one of the things that you said in the panel discussion that we had in Brighton, which I thought was a really good point, was about the the true meaning of the word bigotry. And the true meaning of the word bigotry, as you pointed out, and I've pointed out before as well, because it's my favorite fact to throw at people, is um, not necessarily racism and xenophobia and anti-Semitism, although they can all collapse under the title of bigotry, but it is intolerance, intolerance for people who have a different opinion to yours. And so it strikes me that in this context in particular, and this is not a demand for anyone to be censored, I think bigots should be allowed to speak freely, but in this context in particular, on this issue in particular, the bigots are not the supposed turfs, the, you know, the 21st century witches, it's the people who want to persecute those people and silence them and ban them from Twitter simply for an expressing a certain point of view. So I would argue that TERFs are actually the anti-bigots and the, the true bigots are the kind of fanatical wing of trans activism who want to silence those opinions. Yeah, and I mean, what feminists are doing, the feminists who are labeled TERFs, who are, who are concerned about this gender identity stuff, we're having conversations and it's like, and I mean, at least I'll speak for myself, but a lot of other feminists as well. It's like the events that we've held in Vancouver are public events. We want people to come and engage in the discussion and we want our detractors to come and engage in the discussion. Like we're trying to have these conversations and these people, these trans activists who are accusing us of bigotry are refusing to engage, trying to shut down the conversation. You know, they're the ones who are intolerant. Mm. They're the ones who don't want to hear it, who don't want to have civil, respectful conversations and instead want to, like, scream nasty things at us or, you know, like, punch us or whatever. And it's so weird 
It's so weird that the actual bigots, they are actual bigots. Like that's actually what the definition is. The actual bigots are calling us <laughs> bigots and continuing on with their bigotry. Like I don't know. The whole thing is like very difficult to discuss because it's so weird, but like they fit the definition and they won't, I mean, they won't even respond to what we're saying mm. and they won't respond to what they're saying because they know we're right. Yeah. <laughs> My very final question is, I think you're right. This is something that's made me unpopular, but I think you're right that feminism hasn't had a sufficient attachment to the ideal of freedom of speech. And I also am of the opinion, you might not agree with this, but I'm also of the opinion that the trans bigots, as you accurately call them, may have learned a few of their tactics from the more censorious wing of feminism over the past couple of decades, which has wanted to ban certain opinions and misogyny and so on. Do you think it's possible that the current experience that some feminists such as yourself are going through will reinvigorate a commitment to freedom of speech among not only feminists, but the left more broadly? Or are you less optimistic? about? Well, that? no, the left is a lost cause. But <laughs> feminists, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I work with and I know a lot of feminists who are interested in free speech and do support free speech. And, and I will say that I've never ever, I've never in my life signed like a petition to have somebody banned from the country or banned, you know, that happens to like rappers a lot. Mm. And I'm a hip hop fan. So obviously I'm like, but I like it, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I've never, but I also haven't spoken out against those kinds right. of things. Like I haven't said, okay, like let's undo a petition to like prevent this person from performing or speaking or whatever. I just haven't personally supported it myself. And now, of course, even more so, I, I, I really don't like those things. They've always sort of made me feel uncomfortable, but I think I just never really, I never really thought through why it made me uncomfortable and why I didn't like it. I, I didn't think it through as much as I should have. But yeah, I mean, I, hopefully this is like the most obvious, it should be obvious to feminists. So I, ho I hope it becomes obvious to feminists that we do need to support free speech and that it's incredibly important because it really can turn on us quickly. Megan Murphy, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.